0: to the little book of Jude, second to the last book in your New Testament. We are quickly coming to a conclusion uh, in our study of this postcard epistle. It's my goal that we would make our way through the end in the next two weeks, Lord willing, That means I have two weeks to review and really kind of set the nail, as it were, on this little epistle that gets very little attention, typically, but hopefully now, having spent some time together examining this, that you at least have some things to hold on to when you come to the book of Jude. There's something you know about this book. I want to remind you that this book was written by the Lord's half-brother, Jude. Uh, it appears from the New Testament that Jude was perhaps an itinerant kind of minister, uh, traveling in different congregations and preaching to different people. We know that Jude wrote nearly 2,000 years ago. So how could something written 2,000 years ago have any bearing on our situation today? What would that have to do with you? Well, what Jude tells us, the reason for which he's writing is found in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude tells us very plainly, he is writing to exhort and appeal to you, people in the seats, to contend for the faith. And so you have seen this nearly every week that we've been in this epistle, and I keep showing it to you, that this is what you would walk away with. It is the duty of every genuine believer. That is you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why is this necessary? Why you? Why not the pastor? Why not the deacons? Certainly we're included in this category, but it specifies you. Well, he tells us in verse 3, verse 4, rather, he says, you should contend for the faith because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who do two things, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And secondly, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude writes and says, you must contend for the faith because certain people gain access among the people of God. They claim to be God's people and yet their intent is to pervert God's grace. Pervert it so by a means that it would actually condone that which is sinful. And also they deny the Lord's absolute authority in their lives. I want you to note that Jude is not speaking against false teaching per se, although that would be a part of this. But Jude is actually concerned with false living that undermines a genuine profession. That people can say one thing, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe the Bible, and yet live in a way that undermines all of those statements. And that is Jude's concern. What would this possibly have to do with us? Well, just this week, I came across some information, and I was made uh, aware that there's actually a conference that will be held in the northern suburbs of Indiana at North Point Community Church. It's a church that uh, claims to be an evangelical church church that was started back in 1995 and the man who started that church said that it was his goal to reach as many people possible in the Atlanta area with the gospel and to see people come to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ which is a very admirable thing. This pastor is uh, the son of a well known radio personality, a man who by and large in his ministry has taught what is true. Charles Stanley, many of you have heard, you know his name and In Touch Ministries. His son Andy said this week that they are going to have what is called an unconditional conference. And the conference at this church is a two-day premier event. It's especially designed for parents and ministers of those in the LGBTQ community on the face you would read that and say that's a very you know, commendable thing. We, we want to minister to all kinds of people regardless of their background and know how to effectively reach them with the gospel. The trouble is, is that Stanley has actually invited two speakers to this conference who themselves are in same-sex relationships. Two men who will speak, both of them say they are gay men but are in monogamous same-sex relationships They will be speaking at this conference. The conference hasn't happened. I don't know what will be said, but just by that alone, and you are kind of condoning and giving a platform for that, for people to speak at this conference, It's very concerning. I want to remind you that this is not a self-professed liberal denomination that long ago had denied the truthfulness and veracity of God's word. This is what has been marked as an evangelical ministry going to reach people with the true gospel. And yet now it appears that as one writer has written, the train has left the station. They apparently have abandoned the plain truth of the Bible. How does that happen? Could it happen here? Might it happen? When Jude writes nearly 2,000 years ago that it is a responsibility of people out there to contend for the faith and beware of certain people who would want to infiltrate unnoticed and yet promote promote a false view of God and His grace that would actually cover sin and encourage sin and deny His absolute authority on things that He has been very clear about. It's like Jude is writing to our 21st century church, is it not? And therefore, it is upon all of us understand how we must contend for that which is truly the faith the plain truth of what God has said since that is the duty of all of us how do we do that? Jude answers the why question in fact the brunt, the bulk of his epistle answers this question He states it in verse 4 and then he gives illustration of this throughout this little epistle. He talks about the people of Israel and that God delivered them from Egypt and they were all in the wilderness. But yet even among them there were people who really didn't believe. And He said that God dealt with them. He talks about an angelic host, an angelic company, angels. Creations of God. And yet even among the angelic host there was a defection from what God had ordained to be right and good. Therefore he uses these examples and he says beware, you too must be alert. It is the duty of every believer to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints but how do we do this? What must you do? that has been our focus, beginning in verse 20 of the book of Jude. Verses 20 and 21, he focuses primarily on the how. i have repeated this time and again, but I do so so that it'll stick in your mind. There is just but one command. When you read verses 20 and 21, it seems like there's four things going on. There's actually just one thing that is primary. That's verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. How do we contend for the faith? It's remaining rooted in God's love for me. That is essential to contending for this faith. Because when I begin to question God's love, I begin to question his goodness in all of these things and the things that he instructs me concerning his word, and I question the goodness of those things. I now am susceptible, and I have opened myself up to compromise. That's exactly the way that Satan worked in the garden in Genesis 3. The first thing he did was cause them to question whether or not God really loved them and had their best interest at heart. Therefore, we must remain rooted in God's unchanging love for us a love that is greater than unconditional. It is active and it is intentional to change us. And in the context of the book of Jude, this is how you contend for the faith, remaining rooted in God's love. We would say progressing in your Christian life in a greater understanding of the security you have in Christ. Well, how do you do that? According to verse 20, You, beloved, you are to do this. Build yourself up in your most holy faith. Remain in God's love by growing as a believer, understanding what is the faith, building yourself up in it, growing and making progress, and praying in the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last week. Praying in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Praying with the help of the Holy Spirit prayer that is prompted by the Holy Spirit. The final thing he says about keeping in the love of God is in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God while doing this, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude says you remain rooted in God's love by growing as a believer, building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, and now waiting for for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What is that? How do you do this? What Jude is talking about, he's talking about anticipating the mercy of our Lord. So I want to preach to you on that topic. Anticipating the mercy of our Lord. Is that something you anticipate? Because It's a part of remaining rooted in God's love. Let's pray, i we'll examine this briefly. Lord, thank you for your word, and help us to understand its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice that mercy occurs regularly in this passage. Verse 21 of Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord. Look at verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show what? Mercy. Mercy, that word occurs three times in this context. Obviously, it's related and they're taken together. This morning, we're only going to have time to look at the first aspect of this. In verse 21, we're told that mercy is what believers will receive. In verses 22 and 23, we're told that mercy is what other people need. This morning, we'll look at this fact that mercy is what believers will receive. The mercy of our Lord. What is mercy? How would you define that? Let me just give you the lexical definition of mercy. One is, mercy is leniency and compassion shown toward offenders by a person or agency of authority. This is the idea legally of mercy that we perceive, right? Someone is condemned. They are to receive a just sentence, and mercy is leniency or compassion. It is not carrying out the sentence. That's a legal idea of mercy, really a broad idea of mercy is this it is kindness or compassion or kindness or concern expressed for someone in need somebody has a grave need and mercy feels that need but doesn't just feel it does something about it expresses kindness to somebody in that need well where does mercy come from? Where does this idea of mercy, we, we understand it, we all have felt it, but where does it originate? I want you to look with me at the book of Exodus in the 33rd chapter. Exodus 33. As you're turning there, the, the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. Moses has led them into the wilderness. Moses has gone up on Sinai to meet with God, and the people have made a golden calf and have sinned against the Lord. Moses intercedes for them and continues to do so through these chapters. But if you look at Exodus 33, we have an exchange between Moses and the Lord, in particular on the mountain. Notice we're told in verse 18, Moses, while meeting with the Lord on Mount Sinai, says this. Moses said, please show me your glory. In the context in verses 12 through 16, Moses has had this dialogue with the Lord. He says, Lord, you know I love you and and I found favor in your sight. And, And God says, yes, Moses, you have found favor in my sight. And Moses is drawing near to the Lord and he says, Lord, let me see you. Let, me, let my eyes look upon you. Show me your glory. Look at what verse 19 says. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. Now skip down to verse 20. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And The Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. But notice, God said in verse 19, he was going to proclaim his name before Moses this way. And Moses was going to understand something about the Lord as God revealed Himself in this way. Now look down in chapter 34 and look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him that is with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God, what? merciful that's the first thing god says about himself to moses in proclaiming his name his character who he is he is merciful and gracious slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping this steadfast love for thousands he's forgiving forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. But don't confuse that with the fact that he's not concerned about sin because he will by no means clear the guilty. Beloved, where does mercy come from? Mercy originates in the heart of God. God is merciful. He always has been merciful. He always will be merciful. Notice, Mercy here, God is saying, mercy is not something I do. Mercy is something I am. The Lord, merciful, gracious. This is God's character. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we're told of the story of, of David's Other sin, as it's often referred to, when David numbers the people of Israel, and and certainly there was a false motive in his heart, and because of that, the Lord tells David, you have sinned. And he sends his prophet to David, and the prophet tells David, David, you have sinned and there will be consequences for this sin, and there are three options, actually, that the Lord will give you. There's three years of famine to be faced in the land, or there will be three months of defeat by your enemies in warfare or there will be three days of pestilence, or three days of judgment from the hand of God through disease. Do you remember which one David chose? David said, I'm going to take the three days of pestilence. But do you remember why he said that? He said that because I know that God is merciful. He said, don't let me fall into the hands of a man who often know no mercy, but let me be in the hands of God even in the time of judgment. God is merciful. He has kindness or concern for those that are in need. It is the heart of God. Let me ask you, does that surprise you? What do you think about God? Do you think of Him as, but God is exacting and stern and severe and, and always waiting for his opportunity to clobber me. And your mind goes to, to things that we read of in the scripture, and you think, but, but I remember how severe God was with, with Nadab and Abihu, those priests in Leviticus chapter 10, the sons of Aaron that, that brought strange fire to the altar. And having done so, God's justice and judgment upon them was swift, and he struck them dead. And we read things like that, and we say, God is, is severe. And we read things like Numbers 16 and the sons of Korah, other priests, Korah who said, what is it that Aaron gets all the access rights into the Holy of Holies and the priesthood? We're priests. How come we don't get those same rights? And Korah raises a rebellion, and in Numbers chapter 16, do you remember what happens, how God deals with that? It says the ground opened up, and they were falling into the grave alive. And we say God is severe. We read in Second Samuel chapter 6 of the moving of the ark back to Jerusalem Parted by oxen and two men walking with the cart and the oxen stumbles and the cart tips and the Ark of the Covenant, that place that resembled the holy presence of God, goes to fall and Uzzah sticks out his hand and Uzzah is smitten with death. And we say God is We read in the New Testament of Acts chapter 5 when a man named Ananias sells a certain portion of land and he comes and he brings it to the feet of the apostles and he says, I've given you all the proceeds from this land. And he hadn't. He was actually hypocritical and he kept some back. And do you remember what happened to Ananias? God struck him. And his wife came and she is in on it too. And what is her... The result of her sin. We read these things and we say God is severe. In fact, there was a preacher by the name of Donald Barnhouse who on the basis of Acts chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira would never allow his congregation to sing the third stanza of At Calvary, which reads, "...now I've given to Jesus everything and now I gladly own Him as my king." And Barnhouse said, if we really sang that, there would be a mass grave in our church. Why? Because God is severe. But beloved, let me just remind you of this. Why do we remember Nadab and Abihu and Korah and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira? We remember those things because God so infrequently does that. Because there are millennia between those events where God, although rightfully could have condemned all, he is merciful. And God is merciful to you. I don't know about you, but I don't want what I deserve. I want God's mercy. God every day demonstrates a kindness and a concern expressed for people in need. Even people every day who get up and say, there is no God. I'm God. And yet they get the same sunshine you get. They get the same warmth you get. They get the same rain you get. Why? Because God is merciful. That's His character. It's who He is. God's not just merciful in general to all of His creation... God's mercy is extended specifically to those who believe in him through Christ. The divine mercy of God broke into the reality of human misery. What is your greatest need? Well, you might say, my greatest need is money because I've got bills to pay and and i need money to pay these bills and i'm not making light of that need but is that your greatest need well my greatest need is is physical health because i wrestle wrestle with physical ailment and that is my greatest need again i don't want to make light of that but is that really the greatest need you have my greatest need is is emotional stability and I'm having an emotional breakdown and difficulty in dealing with relationships and things going on in my life and anxiety and fear. My greatest need is spiritual ignorance. I just need to know more about the Bible. Beloved, our greatest need, all of those things that I just mentioned can be traced back to the root problem of our greatest need, which is sin. Sin. is that that we, in our heart, rebel against the true authority of this merciful God. And we want to live as if we are God. And because of that, we are under the just wrath of that almighty God. And therefore, when God does things like what happened to Uzzah and Korah and Ananias and Sapphira, it's not unjust, it's just that justice was finally served. But there's only one way to come to the point where you actually receive divine mercy, And this divine mercy of God broke into the reality of human misery in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came and did something about justice, He took your justice that you might receive mercy. And this is a motive for salvation. Look at these passages of Scripture on the screen, receiving mercy. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says this, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's the first time Jesus came. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own what? The mercy of God was a motive for salvation. Our greatest need was sin and dealing with sin. And God, in His mercy, dealt with it in His Son. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great what? Mercy. mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of His great mercy, our great need, and His compassion in meeting that need, He brought us to life through Jesus Christ and what Christ has accomplished for us. Don't need to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible says, God is rich in mercy. When it comes to mercy, God is wealthy in it because that's his character. That is why, if you look at Jude, look back in your text at Jude. What Jude says to these believers in opening up his epistle in verse 2, he says to these people, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May mercy be multiplied to you. Why? We all need the mercy of God. And he says, God is a God of mercy, and He's wealthy in it. And may He multiply that to you. Believers, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the mercy of God. Because Jesus Christ took hell for you. He took justice for you on Calvary and paid the full price. The just wrath of God was poured out upon him that you might stand in a place not of judgment but of mercy. We receive this mercy through faith in Christ but we also anticipate mercy. And that's really what our text focuses on in verse 21 when it says we keep ourselves in God's love because we are anticipating mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is now talking about a mercy to be shown in the future. We're waiting, we're anticipating this. When Jesus Christ comes back again the second time, He will return as a judge the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul says that God has set a day by which he will judge the world, and he will judge the world by one man, and he has made it known by which man this is, by raising him from the dead. And he said that Jesus Christ will come back, and when he comes again, there will be a judgment bar, and he stands as judge. And because of sin, when Jesus comes back, I would deserve eternal punishment, eternal separation from him because I have sinned, I have rebelled against the true king, therefore I should deserve eternal punishment which is called eternal death in the scripture and that is separation from him forever, but if you know the Lord Jesus Christ beloved, when Jesus comes back, The Bible says there's a mercy shown to you and it's the fullness of God's mercy. The fullness of God's mercy looks like this. You will now receive a resurrected body that is without sin and you will be ushered into a place where there is no more curse for sin. And nobody is resurrected in this resurrected body, and nobody enters heaven in that perfect condition and walks through that gate and says, I'm glad I made it. I worked so hard to get here. Everybody, when they stand before Jesus Christ and he says, enter into the glory of your Father, will say, it's only by God's mercy. It's only because God is merciful. And in God's mercy, when we enter into that eternal state, the Bible says it looks like this. There he'll wipe away every tear from the eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed. Why do those things exist? They exist because we live in a world that is cursed because of sin, because of my sin and my rebellion against God. But God in his mercy has devised a way for you to be delivered and forgiven from that sin and enter into the new creation where there will be no more death and no more pain and no more crying. And only because God is merciful Let me just ask you, are you waiting for that mercy? Are you confident that God will be merciful to you? How am I confident? It's only through faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in Him alone, that you can be confident when He comes again. Is that true of you? These aren't my words. These are God's words. I want to end with this. So James puts this in the context, or Jude rather, in the context of keeping in the love of God. How does anticipating the mercy of our Lord that leads to eternal life, not eternal death, how does that keep me in God's love, help me to remain rooted in God's love? Let me put it to you this way. Imagine that there is a king of a great empire and this king is kind and just and fair yet you despise that king. In fact, you deny that king and you wish to make yourself king in his place. In fact, you incite A rebellion against this king. And is your desire to overthrow him entirely so that you can simply have your way? But your rebellion is put down, it is crushed. And you have your day before the judgment. What will be your consequence for your rebellion? Here you stand in a court and it is the day of judgment and the sentence comes down upon you that you are guilty of rebellion and your punishment is death. At the moment they're willing to take you out for the execution. Lo and behold, the king steps from his throne and he stands by your side and he says, I will take that and he does and now you're free let me ask you what do you discover about that king you thought him harsh you thought him unwise what do you learn about that king This king is merciful and he is kind and he loves me. He gave everything he had for me. More than that, what is your response to that kind of mercy? Would it not be And I wish to never offend this king again. I wish to allow him to rule in all parts of my life. By the way, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Do you know what the mercies of God are? It's everything he's talked about in the first 11 chapters, which is the most Condensed theological treatise in the New Testament on the gospel and salvation. God's mercy to you. And Paul says, I appeal to you based on this mercy shown to you by this king that you live for him. You present your body a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable which is your spiritual act of worship because people who really understand the mercy of God and they anticipate it and they wait for it, they live in light of it. Contrary to the people that Jude has identified, certain ones who creep in and actually want to make light of God's grace and God's mercy. And encourage a living that is against God's will. And deny his authority and rule over their lives. And so Jude says, remember God's mercy. And wait for it. It will keep you remaining steadfast in this God's love for you. And just like you would never want to offend that king, you'll live out that mercy. May God help us to anticipate and live in light of His mercy. Shall we pray?